Aristotle likes to talk about things that are separable conceptually, but not in fact. They are, you know, choristikos, but not really. And part of the claim is that the body and the soul are this way, that at least on earth, you know, is possible to interpret a human body as a purely physical machine, but it's also possible to interpret the human body as a vehicle for spirit. And excluding either one from view, it's always crucial to remember that anytime you do that, anytime you perform that chorismos of separating off one or the other aspect, you've lost something. You're, you're, you're missing the whole picture. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this episode, I speak with Spencer Clavan. Spencer is a classicist, author of How to Save the West, and host of the Young Heretics podcast. Spencer argues correctly in my view that we face five crises and how we respond to them determines to a large part who we are as individuals and a society. These crises pertain to reality, body, meaning, religion, and regime. In our conversation, we discuss these challenges, the classical accounts of virtue, and whether Stoicism has what it takes to solve our predicament. I really enjoyed this one. Spencer has a different cut than I do on many of these issues, but he's exceptionally knowledgeable uh, and talented at taking ancient works and applying them to our modern problems uh, and doing that in a serious and rigorous way. And before we get started, I should say, if you'd like to learn more about Stoicism, get a sense of what it's like to apply the philosophy to your life, check out our Stoa app. Uh, just search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store, or check out the Stoa Letter, that's stoaletter.com, a free newsletter that goes out twice a week. Here is our conversation. Today I have the privilege of speaking with Spencer Clavan. Spencer is a classicist and author of How to Save the West. He also has a fine forward to a book called Gateway to the Stoics, which is a nice collection of writings from the ancient Stoics. Thanks for joining. It's a pleasure to be here, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, let's start with a broad question. What's your story? You know, the first part of my story is that I grew up in a house full of books. And I think I had to learn that that was weird. It never occurred to me that most kids weren't so lucky as to be surrounded just by these beautiful bookshelves, you know. And I say that because some of my earliest memories are from ranging around my parents' house. We, I grew up in, in London, so I guess our, our apartment at the time, and just kind of pulling things off the shelves. And I think that what that taught me very early on is that to be surrounded by books is to be surrounded by friends. I think as I went out into the world, I learned, realized that a lot of people don't think of old texts as friends. They think of them as challenges, as kind of forbidding objects, as symbols of 
all kinds of evil hierarchies and exclusive power structures. But in fact, I knew from just my heart that none of that was true. You know, I knew that between the covers of an old book is another mind. And it's most of this stuff that we're here to talk about today, the Stoics, as, as a primary example, actually. These are not there to furnish material for PhD theses. These are not like fodder for eggheads like me to write complicated essays about. They're actually good faith efforts from the heart to wrestle with what it means to be human and how to be good at being human. And that's been the greatest source of comfort and companionship really in my life ever since. You know, my career is an academic career, but it's also quite intensely personal in, in that way and, and always has been. So now that I've ended up doing things like this, podcasts, writing books, kind of existing out in the crazy social media world, that does kind of remain my my North Star is that I think people are really hungry at the moment for something, some sort of richer food than the news cycle can give them. And that is what I, what I think we can get out of the great books and, and what I try to offer. So you were on the academic path for a while. Was there a point where you knew you might you know, enter the public square, enter the social media realm as it were, or was it always a plan to study the great books while you can and then escape while you can as well. <laughs> yeah, it's like get out before you before it's too late. No, oh, I, right. I, it's it's funny cuz like actually grad school in some senses was a bit of a detour for me. I didn't set out to get a PhD. I thought that I wanted to be an actor. And in college, I double majored in theater and in classics. And that was the theater that really spoke to me is, wow, wouldn't it be cool to go to New York and be on Broadway or try to be on Broadway, you know? And I spent a lot of time, a lot of energy doing that. There's still a lot from that training that kind of sticks with me. But something that I realized actually right before my senior year was that even though I loved being on stage, loved acting, singing, whatever, I didn't actually love the process, the boring parts, the grind, the like hanging lights, memorizing lines. I, I was happy to do that because it meant that on the other end, I would be on stage. But in itself, it wasn't a great delight to me. And, you know, Aristotle and other ancient philosophers talk about intrinsic joys versus extrinsic joys or intrinsic rewards versus extrinsic rewards that if you're doing something for the purpose of something else, that's not quite as high, as elevated, as excellent as something that is its own reward, that is itself the good of, of itself. And that's what I kind of realized about scholarship when I was in that, you know, sort of pivotal year, was that I even liked just sitting, you know, what, what the Germans call Sitzfleisch, which is basically parking your butt in a seat and reading, even if it, like, it never goes anywhere, even if you kind of can't get published or whatever, that in itself was, was, was a delight to me. And so that's when I kind of decided that I should keep that up, at least for a little longer. But it was never with the certainty that what I wanted was to go be a professor or to do whatever. It was mm -hmm. kind of more like, let's follow that bliss as, as far as it goes. And I fell 
deeply, deeply in love with Oxford, where I went to do my PhD and with the subject that I was working on, which was ancient Greek music. But at a certain point, yeah, I did start to feel again as if the particular like thing that I am, the you know, the the key that I am or the piece of the of the puzzle that I am fit best into kind of a more public facing world. And so you know, nothing, nothing good is ever lost, right? Nothing that is given to God is ever lost. And, and so I, ultimately, I think a lot of that theater training, a lot of that um, just relational stuff from my, from my earlier work did come back and it, it informs in a big way the stuff that I still do. But yeah, I, I, I think it was more about, at every point, it was about following bliss. You know, that's the great Joseph Conrad line or Joseph Campbell, excuse me, is, is just about the, the next step in front of you is the one that feels like your deep joy is meeting the world's deep hunger. And that distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic goods was kind of what led mm -hmm. me along the way. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I suppose mm -hmm. mentioning Joseph Campbell just brings to mind the fact that the hero doesn't have a clear career plan. Huh. Often they're yeah. not trying to, you know, have the dark night of the soul at this period of time and then reemerge conquer the beast, what have you, some other time. Yeah, that's one of the kind of core elements, I think, of the hero's journey is that it's given from without rather than determined from within. And I think we're all in that position to a certain extent, even no matter what role work plays in our lives, because, you know, I'm speaking now as somebody whose career and whose kind of life journey or trajectory are very, very tightly aligned. There's not a lot of daylight or space between what I love and what I do, which is a great blessing. But I don't think that's the only way to determine your path in life. I think it's actually noble and and good, even though we don't we don't have as much of a cultural space for this anymore. But it used to be kind of taken for granted that a lot of people went to work so that they could live, not as their life. And in some sense, that takes the burden off of your work to to a certain extent. You know, you don't if you think of yourself as a hero on a hero's journey but that that journey might not be identical with your career, then decisions about where to work kind of become a little bit less dire, a little bit less catastrophic. And sometimes I find that's a helpful way to think is like, you have a telos, you have a goal. There's no question. Everybody does. You have a, a path that you are on, but that the next step on that path doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your, with your work. It might not. No, absolutely. I think that's a great point. The mm -hmm. Stoic Epictetus talks a lot about role ethics. I think if we... Mm -hmm. Think about that today, a career is one of the roles, but what that looks like is going to depend on who you are, what your talents are, who your, what your social relations are, and what community you're in, and a myriad of other different factors. And the degree to which it's an important role or not in your life will change over time and be quite different between different persons as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think this, the Stoic concept of oikiosis which is a word that sort of has to do with your with home, where you're at home, but also can translate into sort of a fittingness or a rightness and an appropriateness. I think this is a really powerful concept. And one way that it's powerful is it helps us to think about ourselves as more than just kind of pure products of arbitrary choice which is one sickness of modernity, I think, is to represent people to themselves as these, these just kind of fully liberated beings that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. 
And that's actually quite paralyzing because it's really hard. Like we want so many things at so many different times. Plato represents desire as a many-headed monster. Like we're always pulled in a million different directions. And so asking for yourself what is appropriate in a given relationship, like what kind of role am I filling? What kind of archetype even am I aspiring toward? Can be really liberating in in some sense. You know, not that you have to treat that like a straitjacket. Not that every husband looks the same as every other, or every father looks the same as every other. But just that the the position you find yourself in in relationship to others imposes certain obligations on you, and that's a good thing. That's like guidance. Mm-hmm. That's part of your uh, how you discern your path forward. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's a the fact that not all bonds, social bonds, are chosen. As it were, is mm. just the realization that there's value outside there already, and all you need to do mm. is appreciate it, act in the right way with regard to it. You don't need to, you know, say choose between some menu of hundreds of different items. It's already mm. already there. Right. Yes, I think this is something that antiquity can help us to recover, and perhaps even a more broad sense. You know, we inherit, I think, from the 19th century, from from Nietzsche especially, we inherit this crushing obligation to be the origin and source of value, to generate for ourselves the good. And the fundamental kind of fact of so much ancient ethics, Stoicism included, although not exclusively, is that the good is objective and it's outside of you. It, it may be unique to you. Aristotle talks a lot about this. It might be that you know what's good for you isn't going to always be good for me, but it's also not arbitrary. It's not something that you can simply pose as like, oh, now what's good for me is to like get blackout drunk for a, a week straight, you know, like, and, and I'm just going to call that good. You actually live in this world of hard and fast natural realities, and and. To me, this is the only way that like, we can meaningfully speak of virtue, and in turn, virtue is the only way that we can meaningfully seek joy rather than simple pleasure or, or happiness. Right? When you take pleasure in things that are objectively good, then you know joy, even if you suffer greatly, even if you have to strive and struggle. Something as simple as like when you wake up in the morning, asking yourself the question, like, why am I getting out of bed? What's the good on the other end of that action? And can I learn to delight in it? Like not kind of losing that crucial element of like your personal delight in the good is the capstone <laughs> of ethics. Like it's not simply that you need to do what is, what is right, that you need to love what is right. And, and this is actually, I think, a much more successful way to motivate yourself as well. Not like, oh, I'm giving up all, this, all these fun things, all these tasty pleasures, but actually... I'm seeking something that is more richly satisfying. So I'm giving up like sleep, another hour of sleep. I'm giving up that last drink. I'm giving up whatever, but what am I getting? I'm getting clear headedness. I'm getting the feeling of satisfaction that comes from a, a good workout or, or, you know, more deeply, I'm giving up sleeping with everything that moves, but I'm getting the richness of marital fidelity. Like I'm getting relationships that are more robust and, 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 and thickened with a kind of tapestry of time. Like that stuff is. That's when you're really cooking with gas, I think, is when you are not just kind of scolding yourself into the good, but actually loving your way into the good. Right, right. Yeah, the Stoics saw virtue as 
knowledge. So if you're in the position where you know you feel like you have some outer imposed obligation, you're doing it because you ought to, but you don't want to. I think mm. the stoic view would be there's some feature of that situation where if you really ought to do it, you maybe you aren't seeing it clearly, you aren't seeing it from the right standpoints. Because if you if you could, then it would be motivating in and of itself. And you know they suggest a number of different exercises for doing that or different maxims for coming to see why the virtuous actions would would bring joy. Yes, and the concept, another powerful Stoic idea, the concept of, of the indifferent as a, as a noun, not as like an adjective, but that which is kind of irrelevant to your decision-making process and your, and your choices. And, and one indifferent might be pleasure and, and pain, right? It might be that your momentary experience is not actually doesn't contain useful information for you about what choices you should make. This is, of course, Marcus Aurelius is kind of great. I think his greatest contribution is his repeated return to that concept. And his he sort of demonstrates or models what it looks like to recenter yourself in that all the time. And so then, you know, you're again, once once again, sort of liberated from taking the most kind of immediately obviously pleasurable or easy route and set free to ask like from the actual possibilities that are available to me what is the best one and that will come with all sorts of joys that you maybe can't even yet see but it won't be getting led around by the nose by the things that you either can't control or that you know you didn't ask for these kind of things that we just wake up every day with a million different competing claims on us. I, I, I think that this is like, I, I'm interested to know what you think actually about, along with that concept of, of virtue as knowledge, there is to me a kind of specter of the unity of the virtues, which is not unique to the Stoics. It's a kind of Socratic idea as well, mm-hmm. but is one of the most complicated questions for me that, you know, there's all sorts of stuff in Chrysippus about like if you become a sage, you become one all at once and you have all the virtues all at once because you have wisdom essentially and, and contained in wisdom is like all the other virtues. And I, I can sort of see a sense in which that's true. I also think that it, we're never really at that point. Like, and, and this is something that some Stoics acknowledge that, is that like you, you can't, there are no sages essentially. That like, you know, the sage is a sort of ideal that we're kind of moving toward. But I wonder whether, for you, that's a that's a helpful way of thinking about things. That actually, this is all, all the good, all the virtue, all the knowledge is all one thing. Yeah, I I say I think that's helpful, and it's so. The you know this was a Socratic idea, this idea mm-hmm. that which which of course you know, but for the sake of our listeners, that yep. virtue is unitary, and the reason. One reason, at any rate, why people would say this is that, you know, in what, in what sense is someone who does something brave but reckless or stupid doing anything virtuous? And eventually, people came to the thought, the Stoics came to the thought that virtue required knowledge. And if it requires knowledge, there's no sense in sort of breaking up different kinds of knowledge, which is merely the exercise of knowledge. And maybe you can talk about courage, that's knowing what to avoid, justice, that's knowing what others are owed. But there's no deep distinction between 
different kinds of virtues. And hence, when you say admire someone for being brave, uh, standing up against fear, it really matters. To, were they doing that for the right reasons at the right time? And if so, you're going to bring into the, all the other virtues to bear into that mm. judgment. So I, th I think that's useful for me. Academic philosophers would always talk about cases like the 9-11 hijackers. Were they hmm. courageous? And the classic answer just is, clearly seems to be, no, they're not doing anything good. In what sense could they be doing something courageous? Of course, there's more to say there, but that intuition is theoretically grounded in the idea that virtue is unitary. You know, this is a topic which obviously, again, you will know this for our listeners, this is a topic which concerns Plato in the Lakeys. Precisely this, right? Is courage really courage when it is in the direction of an evil? And I think, you know, as I recall, that's a dialogue that ends in a kind of classic aporia that, that it doesn't actually resolve into like a real confident, definite claim, you know, one way or another. But, but the idea that you just described is kind of strongly hinted that that's, that's the right way. And I, I think that, you know, one thing that this helps us to see is that when, when we're using the word virtue, we're actually working with a slightly more narrow concept than the Greek word arete, which begins in Homer as a kind of catch-all for valor, like just all sorts of excellence. You can have excellence in foot racing. Horses can have arete, you know, it, it being, it being horses, it being steeds. And it's in Aristotle and then in the Nicomachean ethics that these different forms of excellence kind of get parsed. And we ultimately land on what you and I have been mostly talking about here, which is, which is moral excellence, ethike arete, which is a word that comes from character, so kind of characterological excellence. And it, it's at that point that you can start to see how this particular kind of goodness that we're concerned with is kind of inescapably knowledge-based, orientation-based, desire-based, that we see people do all sorts of things that we might find admirable, shall we say, or that, that obviously contain some sort of skill or, or arete or excellence in the broad sense, but that don't actually qualify in an obvious way for, for that narrower sense of moral virtue, because it's not reflective of good character. And this, I think, for me, also is the crucial distinction when it comes to this question about, you know, knowledge. Is, is, would perfect knowledge translate to perfect virtue? Because there is a tension, ostensibly a tension between that idea and the Christian truth, I think, that we do things that we know to be wrong, right? This is in St. Paul, that which I do, I do not want to do, that which I want to do, I do not do. It's also in Augustine's famous story about stealing pears as a boy, that he did it because it was evil. And so that kind of propositional knowledge, I know that this mm -hmm. is wrong, obviously doesn't translate into good action. But if we understand knowledge to be of a deeper kind, that we're talking here about knowing the goodness, like a taste and see kind of knowledge, then I think we can at least say that that sort of knowledge is 
inseparable from virtue, that when we really do things rightly, we do them because of their rightness. And that rightness isn't just a kind of cognitive knowledge that we have in our head, but is a like whole body we really like believe, you might say, an assent, an assent to its to its rightness, which of course is another important stoic concept. Like you have to kind of know that the thing is good and assent to its goodness and then want it as a result or, or at least do it as a result. Yeah, certainly the early Stoics seem to have this propositional model of the mind where mm-hmm. you, that would rule out things like acrasia and the way the mind works is almost like a kind of computer. But what you just said, said there about, you know, the sort of deeper form of knowledge, it's not merely cognitive, not merely propositional, does seem to come out, at least in the exercises of the Roman Stoics. If you think about how Marcus Aurelius will often do an exercise of the view from above, look at the stars or look down Mm -hmm. on yourself, see the coming and goings of empires. In a sense, he's not actually coming to any new propositional knowledge. He already knows that empires have come and gone. But by doing this exercise, picturing the world, in this way, maybe coming to a kind of stronger sense of knowledge, you could say knowledge from from a different perspective in addition to mm. the knowledge that. And then I think yeah, once you allow that there are these different kinds of knowledge, you can also talk about embodied forms of knowledge, which the Stoics would be happy to do since you know, they thought everything was a body. Exactly. <laughs> it's, all, it's all soma. It's all corporeal. I mean, this is, that is a great point um, that it, it kind of implied by... Aurelius's exercises is an awareness that propositional knowledge of the cognitive, of the purely cognitive kind is really not enough somehow to translate into action. And almost the premise of the whole meditations is that that's true because one of my favorite aspects of the book is how constantly frustrated he is with himself. I think I mentioned in the introduction to Gateway to the Stoics that as I was doing my research, I started kind of ferreting around in r slash stoicism which is the reddit board that talks about stoicism huge reddit board like half a million followers and there was i came across this post that was quite popular that said something like i can't believe i failed at stoicism again (laughs) and i thought wow it's marcus aurelius come to life you know like that's kind of the, the thesis statement of the entire meditation the greek the Greek title, ta ace he out on, the things that he says to himself to kind of spur himself into right action. And so maybe it's, it's possible to square this circle if we think that all, even embodied knowledge has a kind of implicit propositional content that you might say, my, he- my head knows that I, you know, that, that courage is good. My head knows that discipline is good. My gut doesn't yet know that. And what would it look like for your gut to know that? Well, it wouldn't look like your gut saying to itself, you know, this is good, but it would look like the corresponding kind of sentiments aroused in you that would only be aroused if this thing were were good. All of this kind of brings me to thinking, I guess, about the parts of the soul, right? Because from Plato on through to Aristotle, you have this tripartite model or even more than tripartite model, which does place propositional logic, reason, logos at the head in the kind of ruling part. 
but acknowledges that the head needs to somehow communicate what it knows in an effective way to the gut, to the appetitive soul, so that the mm-hmm. desires we follow can be the right ones and the ones we suppress can be the right ones to suppress. And the kind of communicator in between thought and desire or head and gut is the thumos, is the heart, the spirited part, which partakes in reason, but isn't exclusively rational so that it can serve as that kind of mediator in between the two. And I think this is, this is kind of great to think of ourselves as having a little translator from propositional logic into appetite, desire, self-control, and, and, and so forth. You know, that, that, which is, that which is voluntary to Hakusian, you know, that it's not so much that our embodied knowledge isn't propositional. It's just that the propositions aren't coming from the body. They're coming from, from the mind down or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, this, so the, the Stoics, of course, thought the mind was unitary too. So yes. they weren't a huge fan of this picture of the mind. But I think what, that, what we're sort of circling around is that in order to make the Stoic picture work, what the Stoics needed to do is say that this strong dichotomy between reason, different forms of passion, desire is in fact an illusion. And so if you think about reason purely as a sort of propositional, computational type thing, you might be missing what is in fact going on. So I suppose there's one way of making sense of the stoic picture is Mm. to say that yes, the mind is unified, but you know, when we think about a heightened state of passion, there is reason there. And that should cause us to change our picture of what reason is. It's not merely some kind of symbolic way of thought, but rather symbol, symbols are just one way of expressing reasoning. Yes. And, and by the way, that conception is not alien to Aristotle, this idea mm-hmm. that we may talk about parts or aspects, but by that, we don't mean to draw a real dividing line that cuts to the bone of reality. In fact, we're closer to talking about dunames, right? To capacities or, or powers. So there's an analog, interestingly, I've never quite thought of it this way, but in Diogenes Laertius, we do get this description of Stoic theology, which tells us that for the God, for Stoics, you know, there's really kind of only one God, there's, there's Zeus or, or the Logos or the Pneuma or whatever, but that they are, he's called by many names in his various capacities and his various aspects. And those names include like Hera, Athena, you know, that these are actually all, and there are like funny little etymological derivations of why those names get applied to those aspects of the Godhead. And so, you know, perhaps what you're, what you're saying can, can be understood also as like, you know, the soul is unitary, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't occur to us in all these different ways and therefore require right. multiple approaches from us. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. We need different ways to speak about it and dividing into different parts can be a useful, useful way to do that. Well, when we save the West, what are we saving? <laughs> Moving on to your work on how to save the West, of course. Oh, sure. That is a great question. I think first and foremost, we are preserving or carrying forth a tradition. And 
that's not simply an act of regurgitation, although it does involve a fair amount of you know, reading and learning, but it's also an act of continuation and embodiment. So when I talk about the West with a capital W, I'm talking about Athens and Jerusalem, these two sort of great streams of tradition, of thought, of conversation. And you and I have spent our time so far together almost exclusively in Athens, as it were, in the, in the kind of spiritual Athens, not, you know, Athens is not restricted to just that city state during antiquity, but stands in for the whole panoply of kind of pagan philosophers and statesmen that we know of and whose words and works are passed down to us. And doing what we've just done, which is sort of seeking wisdom, seeking understanding, seeking to parse out and adjudicate between the different views in that great conversation, that's, that's a big part of being part of the West, of, of inheriting the West. But we did touch on also the kind of, I like to think of it as a complementary, although some people would say it's a contradictory tradition, which comes from Jerusalem. And that's when we're talking about St. Paul and we're talking about Augustine. We're really referring and reaching back into the heart of kind of monotheism in the Near East, beginning with, with Jewish scripture and wisdom literature, and then you know, passing through Christianity into the Roman Empire, across the world, building Europe, you know, that, that, that to talk about the West at all is to kind of make a fundamental claim that that's a coherent story you can tell. It doesn't, it's, it's not a story about like only one set of beliefs that people have ever had, but it is a story about, you know, interrelationships between participants in this tradition that can speak to one another meaningfully and can internalize and enact visibly these, these ideas. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about here already, you or I or people listening to us could go away and wake up and do these things or behave in these ways. And even under, you know, in, in conditions of extreme duress, you know, I think often of Boethius, you know, in, in, in jail, wondering what it means to do philosophy from this highly constrained place, you know, even in our worst moments, and sometimes even especially in our worst moments, these are practices that we can adopt or ideals that we can strive for. And so, you know, I, I wrote the book because I discerned a fair amount of either indifference to or open hostility toward this whole story. At the, at the beginning of the book, I cite a bunch of people saying either the West doesn't exist, it's a fabrication, and that fabrication is designed to preserve white supremacy, or it is white supremacy, or what have you. And I just, you know, going back to my origin story and the, you know, personal connection I have with these texts, I, I just feel very strongly that that's a quite a wrongheaded and foolhardy way of relating to our tradition, in part because it is the tradition that allows us to make critiques like, you know, this period or these people were insufficiently egalitarian, they were insufficiently fair or proper. I mean, it's, it's from this wisdom literature that we derive our most robust versions of those ideas because we don't get them from ourselves. They don't fall naturally into our lap unless we are preternaturally gifted. So yeah, we're, we're preserving the tradition. We're keeping the conversation alive. And most importantly, perhaps, we are, we're living it out. We're discerning what it means to live this way in 2023 under the circumstances in which we find ourselves. At what point in history do you think the West was least in need of saving? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one answer 
to that is it's always on the verge of collapse. And I sort of say something like this in the book, that mm-hmm. the, the world being what it is, virtue, wisdom are extremely fragile, delicate things. We've already touched on the possibility that like nobody actually is a sage, you know. But I, I think that you can point to certain, you know, European nations at their height or even nations of antiquity. I mean, I would say Athens in the 5th century BC is is a civilization which, you know, you might say that it hasn't yet, it, the West isn't yet fully born because Athens and Jerusalem have yet to meet one another. But there you're looking at a, at a really robust, active, living tradition. And so I would say the markers of like health, Western, Western health are probably A, a strong sense of continuity and connection to the past and, and to spe- this specific past that we've just, that we've just outlined, but B, a, a very vivid and urgent engagement with the past in, in the present. So, you know, I, I read the speeches, for instance, of Burke to Parliament I, I, or his letters and, you know, obviously reflection of the revolution in France. And I think, you know, here is somebody that is really, you know, rooted, standing firm in a tradition, even as in other times and and places, it's falling right apart. And that's the point of writing the reflections. So that's the first part of what I'll say is that, you know, some of those just like maybe very early, you know, enlightenment or just at the turn of the enlightenment era, some of the, you know, height of the British empire, these, these, these things might look stable to us. The second thing I'll say, though, is that they, they probably didn't look all that stable to Burke. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to remember this, but like Pericles, for all that he represents the really pinnacle of Athenian glory in some sense, at least his, his you know, service as Archon kind of straddles this amazing era. I don't think Pericles was waking up every day and thinking, man, we don't, we don't have to worry about anything. Like, we don't have to fight, you know, we don't have to. So it's difficult, I think, to really kind of say with confidence, like this was an unshakable period because there there is no, there are no guarantees, you know, and one illusion I think we might maybe suffer from, I feel that I might suffer from is, you know, I did grow up in the 90s and the 90s might represent for America a, a, a certain apex of cultural consensus of, of, you know, peace, harmony, prosperity, all these things. And so in passing away from that apex, as I believe we have now done into a period of more turbulence and urgency, we, we might have the impression that like we are uniquely unlucky, that we've been served a really bad hand. And I'm not sure that's true. Like nobody wrote us a guarantee at our birth that things were going to be hunky-dory and we weren't going to have to really grapple with stuff. We've invented a dramatically unsettling form of technology in the internet. And and we've gone through a technological revolution akin to that of the printing press. We've witnessed the failure of a lot of, you know, previously successful enterprises at home and abroad. You know, we're, we're in the thick of it for sure. But I'm, I, you know, I, I don't think that it's any more dire than it's ever been, perhaps is one way of putting it. So you talk about five crises. And I, of course, enjoy how you point out that the word crisis doesn't have the meaning 
it has for us you typically today at least for ancient greeks at least the way you use it so do you want to say do you want to say more about your use of that word and how you you know set up the stage for our the five things we're facing certainly yes crisis is one of the most overused words in the english language i think in 2023 we have a crisis of almost everything there's a supply chain crisis there's a covid crisis there's a crisis in the economy we seem to wake up to a new crisis every day and many of the things that I just mentioned, in fact, I think all of the things that I just mentioned are very serious issues that require our, you know, our de devoted attention. But when I use the word crisis, I'm actually referring to something somewhat different. And I would suggest more, more foundational, more fundamental. As you indicated, the Greek word krino means I judge or I make a decision. And therefore a krisis, the noun form, is a point of choosing. It's a, it's a choice between as I like to put it, two fundamentally irreconcilable alternatives. And the thesis in some sense of the book or the motivating framework is that digital technology and historical circumstances have created a situation in which we are faced with really rudimentary fundamental first level questions. And those sorts of questions don't have compromise answers. They may, they may lead us, certain answers might lead us to certain forms of compromise. But when you're up against a question, like for instance, is there absolute truth? One of the things I try to argue in the book is you can't give a halfway answer to that. You have to either believe that there is or not. And so that's a crisis. If you're, if you're arguing over that question, you're in a crisis and you need, perhaps most urgently of all, more urgently than any other time, you need guidance from the past, because it's the past where you find kind of the richest engagement with these questions. And so we think that our tech has like totally transformed the world. And in some sense, it has. But in another sense, it has dredged up questions that are very, very old. And those are the five, you know, crisis questions. Is there absolute truth, crisis of reality? What's a human being? What's our, what's our personhood for? That's the crisis of the body, conflict between body and soul. What does anything mean anything? What's the, the meaning of life? What's the meaning of our existence? That's the crisis of meaning. Is there a God? That's the crisis of religion. And then finally, what is our regime? That's the crisis of regime. What's America supposed to be? Where are we going? What's going to happen to us? And so the book kind of proceeds by laying those crises out in the beginning of each section, and then offering a few kind of points of guidance or resources from the tradition that, that might help us think through those questions. Right. If you had to make a choice on one of those crises or say solve one of those crises, which one, which one would you choose? So there's a case it? to be made that like, it's the crisis of reality because that the first, I mean, I start with that one because I think you can't really address any of the other questions until you've talked about, is there anything true or false? But really, I think the heart of the book and the, the deepest crisis mm -hmm. of all is the crisis of religion. That's where the book reaches its climax. That's the thing that all of these conversations kind of come back to. And it's even difficult to talk about because the minute you say religion, God, people tune right out, you know, like this is just really unappealing to kind of be evangelizing or to be thumping a Bible or, or whatever. And like one of the things I try to show in the book is it's, it's actually much more basic and fundamental than that. It's, it's almost not even like, is there a Trinitarian God as so much as like, is there a plane? Is there a mode of existence? Is there a reality that is more than simply physical or material? And I think that, you know, Nietzsche's great proclamation that God is dead, which 
Heidegger interpreted as meaning all transcendental values are debunked. They no longer exist. There is no vertical dimension to reality. I think that conviction, which is really running its course and really, I think, exhausting its possibilities and, and causing all sorts of problems, that's the crisis. The crisis is, can we believe? There's a debate in the modern Stoic community about the role of God, of course, in, in the philosophy. And on one hand, you have what's often termed traditional Stoics who tend to think that you can not remove God from the picture without seriously damaging the system or perhaps misunderstanding the system. And then on the other side, you have many modern Stoics, which is probably the, the dominant form. Many people encounter Stoicism through what sometimes is called modern Stoicism, I suppose, or, and this is much more focused on the ethics in order to live a good life, be virtuous. And that's, that's all that's required for happiness without having this picture of God. How do you think about these two different kinds of Stoicism? Do you think either of them would be a solution, as it were, to the problem of religion or one of these other crises? How do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I, I do take a position on this in the foreword to Gateway to the Stoics because I sort of, in my nosing around in r slash Stoicism, which contains a lot of representatives of modern Stoicism, and I would associate it also with people like, you know, Ryan Holiday and Massimo Pagliucci, although I don't want to attribute to those guys, you know, any particular, I, I, I don't know them well enough to know what their kind of theological convictions are. But I do think that there is like a self-help version of Stoicism of the kind that you indicate, which actually is very Roman. I, I've, I've been thinking about this lately that Cicero and, you know, and who was not himself a Stoic, but who had a lot of respect for Stoicism and even just like some of the stuff that you, that you get from the kind of Roman nobles that, that smacks of, of Stoicism, it has this kind of practical, like, just give me the bottom line, you know, like, how do I run the world? How do I do what's good? How do I seek virtue? And so we have this very American version of this, which doesn't really want to engage with the metaphysics, doesn't want to engage with the cosmology, certainly finds the whole talk of multiple gods beyond the pale, but really isn't all that comfortable with or interested in the talk of one god either, of, the, of Dios or Logos or whatever, as a conscious mind. And for one thing, I don't think that's going to be strong enough stuff. And my first answer to this is like, I, I'm not sure that that kind of like, this helps me lead a better life is going to carry quite the conviction that, that will be needed in the years to come. But to be let, a little less gloomy and dire about it, I also think you can refer here to a passage in Diogenes Laertius, which reports that many Stoics thought of the three branches, the three great branches of their philosophy as integrated parts of a whole. So, you know, you know this, you've got logic, which is kind of like, how do you think well? Ethics, how do you live well? And then physics or cosmology, which is, which refers to all this stuff like, you know, what is the thin, subtle flame that runs through all of existence and orders it? And how is pneuma and pure and logos? How are these all intertwined? And like, it seems to me that ancient Stoics didn't really think that you could untangle these three modes of thought. And I think that that is a persuasive claim because many 
ethical claims, in fact, I would suggest all ethical claims are somewhere explicitly grounded in, if not conscious supernatural, nevertheless, in a supernatural, in an axiomatic good, right? To, in order to wake up in the morning and ask yourself that question, why do I do what I do? What do I want? Then you, you actually have to place an immovable standard outside the changing world of, of nature. Now, for Stoics, that standard was kind of implicit in nature or threaded through nature. It wasn't, it wasn't strictly speaking more than physical, but it was supernatural or was spiritual or was religious, theological in the sense that we now kind of casually use those words. And I just don't know, you know, if, if the claims about logos governing all of time and space, if those claims are just kind of useful metaphors, then it's hard to see why we should pay any attention to them. It's hard to see why we should live that way when the going gets tough, unless, in fact, the divine mind, the ordering consciousness is really, in a quite literal sense, the final word on what is true. So I, I think you need at least a theological dimension in order to make full, complete sense out of this and also to sort of stand you in, in uh, good stead when the going gets rough. Yeah, it's a deep issue, one that I'm personally agnostic on. Mm. One of my favorite parts from the book is where you say you're going to tell a story, a story about existence itself as a kind mm. of language, which I think was a fine description not only of the Stoic God, but this idea of how does something like Telos get built into the world itself. So I don't know if you could say more about that, because I thought that was a very, very well done, very elegantly put. Thank you. Yes, happily. So this is one of those areas where Athens and Jerusalem, I think, can kind of both contribute to a plausible, cogent description of the world that is also theological. Because, of course, right from Genesis, language is very closely bound up with the creation of the world. God spoke, said, let there be light, and there was light. And it's also the case that, you know, in, in this gospel chapter one, which is to me the most nearly stoic text in all of scripture, we get en arche en hologos. In the beginning was, we often hear the word, but really the logos is the logos. I mean, Stoics, students of Stoicism will know this. This concept, right? The kind of governing order, the, the bedrock set of truths, and, and so forth. And so where Stoicism and Christianity differ is where they locate that logos, or whether they think that logos is exhausted by the material world, or whether it enters into the material world from outside of it, or governs over it. And I have my Christian convictions about that, which is that, right. in, that in order to make sense, the, the divine mind must be more than nature. But either way, what you're looking at is you are looking at a material world which is not full stop material or rather whose physical attributes are not just the brute facts of themselves. They are also formed, shaped in a way that gives, that gives meaning, that expresses some kind of ineffable divine reason and order. And if that weren't true, then our own minds wouldn't work because man is the microcosm, right? Because we have within ourselves this kind of miniature reproduction of the order that governs all cause, all creation. And so for the world to be spoken into existence, to say that is to say that what we do when we do language, that is when we take sounds and we use them as physical tokens of what's ineffably inside of us, that's a little picture 
of what God does when he creates the world, that the transcendent divine gives expression to himself in material form. And that material form is the sky, the trees, the earth, but also the laws of nature, the, the falling rain, and the you know experience of beauty, the, the truths of, of the heart. And this is to be found also in the Psalms, you know, that, that his, his raiment is the sky, his footstool is the earth, right? That these are not simply themselves, these are ob- just, just objects, but that they are actual kind of clothing or modes of expression for, for God. And I think that that's, to me, one of the most profound kind of insights of a Christian theology that, that can also be made to at least harmonize with some of what's said in Stoicism. I think you have... A, it's a good way of understanding how the picture of stoicism need not be reductionistic, even though there are only bodies. The way, it, mm. you know, what is isn't merely some amount of atoms bumping around in the void. That's the Epicurean picture. Uh, and the That's right. See, you know, the logos that could, if you're in the agnostic position like me, and here deeply in the matter of things. And of course, if you yes, say the Christian position, there's, there's more to say about that. Right. And, and you know, the Stoics do this wonderful thing of, of opening up a category, um, a kind of intermediate category between material and immaterial. And there's different ways of kind of interpreting it as maybe supervenient or, or what have you. But these are sort of the sayables, right? They are the telecta, the things that like, it, it, even if they are and the reason they're called sayables is because even if they don't strictly speaking exist, we can still speak of them. Things like the meaning in a word, you know. And I think that's a that's quite interesting. You know, I I I I think they do exist. I think they have. I think that spirit has a kind of fundamental bedrock reality. Uh, but things like time, you know, things things like the meaning of words. I think there are four of them canonically in, in Stoicism. And yeah, it's not that these objects, even though they are somata, even though they are corporal. Corporeal doesn't mean that they're like only corporeal or that their whole meaning is exhausted by the fact of their matter. As you say, that's an Epicurean position. Right, right, right. They either have, you know, maybe perhaps different aspects as one day to speak about it, or there's a, the late philosopher Roger Scruton has a mm. lovely book called The Soul of the World, where he develops mm. a view that I think can go nicely with this, which is he calls it a kind of cognitive dualism. Or you can see the mm-hmm. world in two distinct ways that are fundamentally irreducible to each mm-hmm. other. Yes, absolutely. Aristotle likes to talk about things that are separable conceptually, but not in fact. They are, you know, choristikos, but not really. And part of the claim of the book is that the body and the soul are this way, that at least on Earth, you know, is possible to interpret a human body as a purely physical machine, but it's also possible to interpret the human body as a a kind of vehicle for spirit and excluding either one from view, even if it's, if you're able to do it, it might be useful to think in that way for certain purposes. It's always crucial to remember that anytime you do that, anytime you perform that chorismos of separating off one or the other aspect, you've lost something. You're, you're, You're missing the whole picture until you kind of see it like a stereopticon, like those two things layered on top of each other. Yeah, I got it, got it. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh, boy. Well, this no, this has been a, just a really lovely 
conversation. I hope if, if people are interested, they'll check out the book, which is also on, on Audible. If you like listening to stuff as well as Amazon, you can go get the version read by the author. So thank you for having me. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.